All right. The first inaugural Zoom. Actually, the second one, because we did it with you too. All right. Oh, and Savoie as well. So the third inaugural <laughs> Zoom Ontario Lab. In fact, I can actually stop you from recording it if I want to. Yeah, me too. Look at oh, these that... new privacy features pulling <laughs> out in real time. <laughs> Welcome to Ontario Lab, a podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political staff right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Sam Andrew. I'm Alexi White. And today we are talking about the end of the teacher strikes. Yes, did you remember there was a time in Ontario when teachers were on strike and that's what people were upset about? To me, this seems wild, uh, like a very distant memory. But we talked a lot about it uh, just a month ago, so we wanted to dive back in and check and see how all that is going. Also, we'll also be talking about how the province is, is moving towards moving all learning in the province, all 2 million students in Ontario, moving online, which is a huge move for Ontario, one of Ontario's uh, largest systems and endeavors, public education. And even later in the pod, we'll be talking with my friend, Dr. Casey Park, a critical care physician in Toronto who literally works the ventilators that COVID patients need to live. We're going to check in with them, see how he's doing, how the situation's unfolding on the ground. But first, how's everyone doing holding up? We are, of course, all recording in our apartment, speaking unmoistly into our microphones. The notes here say, discussion ensues. Let us ensue the discussion. <laughs> For that natural, that natural podcast banter. Uh, I am doing fine. I am holed up here uh, with my partner and my dogs and uh, getting into a good routine, you know, things, a lot of people in worse situations than me, so I'm doing okay. We're recording yeah, this on, on Zoom and Alexi, um, I feel like you have an interesting painting behind you. I think there are hats. <laughs> Actually, because of the quarantine situation, uh, my partner and I spent uh, a good amount of time trying to figure out who originally painted this painting. She picked it up for like a hundred bucks in Toronto a while back. And it turns out it is by a Quebecois artist who unfortunately died in the late 2000s. And he makes all kinds of great uh, art like this. For, I mean, this is a terrible thing for us to be talking about on a podcast because nobody else can see this. <laughs> so, the discussion um, that has ensued took a dark turn. <laughs> probably, um, we should probably move on. But uh, no, uh, quarantine is going well for us as well. Um, uh, yeah, we've discovered TikTok. Uh, so that's great. And we're part of the Great TikToks. Um, part of the millennials uh, taking over TikTok. So take that, uh, all you. Know. <laughs> uh, we're bored, and we have the numbers to swamp you out. So <laughs> you thought TikTok was cool, Gen Z? Well, here to make it less cool or more cool. Uh, more cool <laughs> if you're us. Less cool if you're Gen Z. Cool. Well, let's dive right in. So uh, talking about the end to the teacher strikes. Last time we dove into this topic, we were lamenting the Ford government's lack of a workable strategy. We were talking about how we thought the teachers were well ahead and predicting no quick end to the labor disruption. Just based on how things were going a month ago, things have obviously changed. Uh, just last week, OECTA, the Catholic Teachers Union, ratified a deal. Um, so after a deal is reached at the table, the members have to vote on it. And so the members have voted on it. So the labor negotiations are uh, on a central basis are done for OECTA and the rest of the unions are expected to follow. Um, their original reaching a deal with the province um, was followed up pretty quickly by tentative deals being reached with all the other teachers unions, with OSSTF being the only one without a deal. 
key to the OEC settlement was the government backing down on mandatory online learning, which seemed kind of quaint now that all of Ontario was doing online learning. But also, teachers secured $33.8 million to support students with high needs. It allows the, the union is allowed to keep fighting the 1% wage increase cap in court. So the salary increases are not a done deal yet. There's still a court case that could help decide that. So I guess where I want to start is I've heard takes on sort of both sides of this. I've heard some people on Twitter and in the media saying that this was a coup for the government, that the in reality deals would have been much farther off, but public support was going to dry up for the teachers with COVID occupying everyone's mind. And I, but I've also heard in the media and in sort of the folks describing this deal, even from the union describing that this was like a, this deal is a big win for the union. So curious, like what, what happened here? Who do we think came out on top and what does it mean for the sector moving forward? So I, I look at this effectively as a win for the teachers. I think that the Ford government went into this fight with a pretty rigid ideologically driven attempt to restructure the cost of the education system through bigger classes, um, more online learning, really shift the balance. In the end, the government caved on almost everything. Uh, Mandatory online learning is essentially dead. And in the way that it's now been ruled out where not only parents, but also individual teachers can opt students out. So it is basically is not mandatory. And the class size in the end, they settled at 23 rather than 22, which was the average high school class size beforehand. So, you know, moving from 22 to 23 has significant permanent cost savings. It's not that the government didn't get anything out of this fight. But I think if you look at how this all played out, uh, the unions played chicken um, with the government on whether they could maintain public support through this fight. And the government basically caved. So kudos, I think, to the unions um, for holding the line. I generally agree with that. Um, If I was going to take the other side of the argument, I would say the government did a good job of setting expectations in this fight to such an extent that there wasn't much discussion of gains for teachers at all table. And it was so so heavily focused on preventing the government from implementing its agenda that at the end of the day, are the teachers substantially better off than they were when the last contract? Or are they simply pleased at having stopped the government from doing some pretty uh, negative things to the education system. And so that I think would be yeah, the, the counterpoint. The, I mean, that said, the government also expended quite a lot of political capital and didn't end up getting much. So, so that, that also needs to be taken into consideration. But I, I generally agree. I think the teachers uh, won this and, and did a great job. And, um, and because they get to continue to fight this in court, the 1% uh, salary cap, uh, um, this could drag on. And, uh, we've seen in the past um, the Supreme Court, for example, um, overturn these things many years down the road, and, and uh, that results in substantial gains for teachers. So, I mean, there's there's also a, a decent chance in my mind that um, that they continue to see uh, an even better contract as the court case pays out. So, one thing that happened in these, so let's say we're in a world where um, teachers all settle centrally. Um, the media typically carries this as if the labor negotiations are over, but uh, we know from our time in the minister's office that it actually, that's not the end of the labor process, that that kicks off a round of local bargaining between local teachers unions and local school boards. And um, just like curious to maybe walk our audience through what that process looks like. Um, and, you know, if we can expect to see disruption um, moving forward, like, is it going to be a copacetic local discussion or is there the potential for more more strife 
Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think it's so variable. The relationships between the local unions and the local school boards are kind of all over the place. I do think one of the silver linings in all this is that the school boards and the school board associations and the unions are closer probably than they've been in a long time because they kind of fought arm in arm against um, uh, the government in this last round um, in trying to mitigate um, the government's cuts. So to the extent that that, you know, sets the table for improved local relationships, we'll have to see how that plays out. There's always a few kind of just personality driven skirmishes that I'm sure will kind of play out. But I also think the fact that there was such a big labor disruption followed by, you know, this COVID disruption, everyone is going to be have a lot at stake to just wrap this up peacefully at the local level. And so I don't anticipate there being big problems, but you never know. And I think the key issue to watch is the class size change at the high school levels. So from 22 to 23, there are local class size caps that exist in almost all of the local agreements. So things like, you know, shop classes can only be 15 and, and, you know, phys ed can only be X and whatever, whatever. And so because of this kind of permanent change from 22 to 23, some school boards may try to pursue changes to those levels uh, to make that more workable locally, um, which the unions will resist. Any increase uh, will be seen as negative. So that that's the only issue where you could see potential issues. But um, I think overall, I, I don't anticipate it being another round of huge labor disruption would be my guess. Government, I guess, seems to have made some progress in watering down the famous Regulation 274, which I'm sure all of our listeners are uh, intimately familiar with by this point. Uh, what do you guys think uh, the impacts of that will be? And maybe remind everybody what Reg 274 actually is. Yeah, so, I mean, maybe at the risk of losing <laughs> listeners, I'll try to be brief. Um, Reg 274 was a hiring regulation that was put in place with OECTA, the Catholic Union, basically to try to get a handle on nepotism that was especially prevalent in um, Catholic boards of, you know, people hiring their family and friends um, at, at the school level for relatively rare teacher jobs because there was a huge oversupply at that time. Uh, it embedded a series of rules um, about how hiring could take place. And it made it such that the interview pool had to be drawn from a list that was ranked by seniority. There, It was imperfect. It was a blunt instrument that was created. And I think, you know, even Oecto would probably admit that. And that's, I think, why they've now agreed um, to changes. And so what I've seen, I haven't actually seen a copy of the deal, but from what has been reported, it's that 66%, I think, of the positions will now be filled um, through that process and a third can be exempt and also various improvements on the mobility between boards and how that list gets created and things like that. And so I would think that boards obviously will see that as a win, giving them a lot more flexibility to hire. And the boards were right in saying, you know, there were moments when they wanted to make hires based on, you know, equity considerations or um, best fit and that sort of thing. And this probably gets the system closer to where it should be. Um, and I think it's probably, it's a great example actually of like healthy labor relations where, you know, the best solutions get hammered out between the parties, but we'll have to see how it plays out. Yeah. Well, going back to one of the things you're saying earlier, like the, I, I saw a lot of people sort of on Twitter immediately after the news broke, sort of saying like interpreting this as 
you know, everyone just settling because of COVID. And I think that that is unfortunate as a take because it diminishes. Yeah, I don't like, think that's correct at all, no, actually. Like, no, exactly. Like, it's like, it diminishes like what, what at the end was a, a pretty hard fought process on, on most. On massive shifts, I wanted to turn our attention briefly to a shift in the system that has come about as a result of COVID. In response to the pandemic, the Ministry of Education is rolling out a learn-at-home strategy, which which provides TVO-created resources to teachers and parents uh, in an attempt to try and keep students engaged and learning and working during the closures. Um, So at first, this was basically just sort of um, an announcement of resources in math and in reading that kids could uh, and parents and families could access. Um, later on, uh, they announced an expansion of this plan to include teacher interaction with students for a minimum number of hours per week. Uh, they've also spoke to acknowledged a concern that I think, Sam, you actually wrote in an editorial you uh, submitted to the Toronto Star, um, that for areas in the province where technology access is a problem, um, the government acknowledged that that was a problem and said that they are working on technology solutions for areas that have connectivity issues. So that's interesting. The government has also said that no student will have their graduation to post-secondary jeopardized here. So going back, Ontario's public education system supports 2 million students per year, uh, and they're trying to shift the whole thing online pretty quickly. How do we think, just based in the early days that's going, and, you know, if we were still in the minister's office, what issues would be top of mind for us? What do we hope the ministry is paying attention to right now? I think kudos to all involved. This has been obviously an unprecedented situation um, and challenge. And I think people are hugely stepping up. I think the government setting the kind of minimum standards around number of hours per week of learning um, kind of followed the Alberta model. And I thought was, I thought was an effective way to um, do it. And I think, you know, everyone is doing the best they can. And I think parents are, some of them are working from home. Some of them are just trying to keep their kids entertained. Like this is hugely challenging. And so this isn't really about new learning as much as it's trying to stop the bleeding of learning loss that has been shown to disproportionately impact lower income and and um, more at-risk uh, students who don't have access to the same reading materials and, and you know, learning environments. Um, the sort of week one reports that I've heard were sort of some parents reacting that this is being over-programmed um, and it's stressful. I think you have to have faith that, you know, teachers and parents are going to work that stuff out. It's kind of natural for, you know, something that nobody's ever done before to kind of over-prepare. And I'm sure that, you know, as time goes on, that will get sorted out. Yeah, I, I agree with all those thoughts. I think my, my uh, head has shifted more now toward what happens in uh, the fall next year. Um, yeah. Not just, not just in, uh, the K-12 system, but also in the higher education system, they're facing some um, some big challenges to uh, trying to restart new school years. Um, I think at K-12, uh, you got to sort of wonder what can be done in a few short months to kind of move from uh, what we're doing now is not, it's not really online learning, right? As Sam has said, we're trying to stem the bleeding. Uh, but the idea of delivering an entire year of K-12 education online, or even an entire semester term, 
with the tools we have right now um, doesn't seem um, like it's uh, going to be particular, particularly productive um, and there must be better ways to, to do it. Um, so uh, hopefully that we can figure out a, some new approaches there. Uh, on the on the PSE side and higher education, I think this has uh, exposed some of the problems with the, the sort of Wild West uh, competition that has been created across Ontario universities and colleges, um, less so on the college side, more on the university side, with everybody running their own online learning uh, initiatives. And not a, it's not a, a particularly cooperative approach that uh, universities are taking. And so as a result of that, um, there's a lot of duplication, there's a lot of reinventing the wheel. And I think the, um, the crisis has uh, dusted off some uh, ideas that have been more uh, accepted in the college system and in university systems elsewhere in the world that if we could find a way to share some of our online learning courses across institutions and say divide up some of the best some of the divide up some of the courses between different institutions and let them take on making really high quality courses that anyone across the province could take with credit transfer to their institutions we could end up with a much better, higher quality online learning system by September, rather than having every institution scramble to put all of their courses, quote unquote, online, which uh, without um, in proper instructional design can often just be um, recording lectures and posting them online, which is not really high quality online learning at all. And maybe just building on that, like I also think until there's a vaccine, presumably, in this kind of post physical distancing restrictions being lifted entirely, there's going to be restrictions on if you've had any exposure, if you've had any symptoms, uh, you can't come to school, but the schools reopen uh, or campuses. And so thought is going to have to go into, okay, if you have a class of 25, but you know, 10 of them are at home and 15 of them are in class, like how do you're going to set up the learning environment structures to make that work and then like they're staggering back. Do you know what I mean? Like, and so to your point, online learning platforms are probably the best way to think about that, but that takes time and work to prepare for that reality. And so I think it's natural that people are in the moment thinking about getting through the spring, but I think increasingly attention needs to be shifted to thinking through how to set up the learning systems after that. I think you're right. Yeah. It's, it's weird to, Nothing about the situation is 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 lucky um, at all. But in the if there is a silver lining to this, the timing in that you know for most really only a couple months left of the school year, anyways, and for you know universities and colleges, there's only one month left. I think it is possible for systems to not lose too much relative to sort of the whole year uh, by sort of like stitching together some patchwork, like a patchwork of solutions for the short term. But um, yeah, like you, like you said, Sam, like uh, we're going to go into the summer and it'll be really disappointing if education systems, both K to 12 and post-secondary level don't have some kind of really like more robust online approach in the fall. And I think part of that is like the public health experts are saying is even when we can reintegrate, it's not all at once, all at the same time. It's maybe a little bit of reintegration and then going apart for a little bit. And then like sort of it's a, a, it's, it might not be linear, like we're just apart and then we're together. And so there'll need to be systems that we can also turn on and off without hurting students too much. And I just 
I agree that like folks are doing everything they can to basically like stop the bleeding right now. And that effort is to be amended, but going to the summer, I really hope education policymakers are thinking about how do we think about the way we deliver this in fundamentally new ways to ensure that students can continue learning. Cause I mean, I just like, you think of the last thing I'll say is like, you think of the students that are going into post-secondary this year. I mean, not only have they lost a, part of the semester to COVID, but it's also before that they were dealing with like the the teacher strikes. And there are students who have lost quite a bit of this year and who will be going into post-secondary education. The need for high quality education will be increased, not decreased in a time where they will likely not be able to be delivered in the same way. So yeah, I think lots for folks to chew on. Cool. Well, we're going to take a quick break and uh, we'll come back with Dr. Casey Park to talk to us more about this wonderful pandemic situation that that we're in. Lexi, Sam, it was good to talk to you guys. Hey, you. Yeah, you. Sitting there maxing, relaxing, all cool. Public health guidelines actually restrict you from shooting some b-ball outside the school, but while you are inside, you can head to patreon.com slash OntarioLoud or OntarioLoud.ca and support us on Patreon by hitting the Patreon button. You can donate anything from $3 to $15 per month. In these trying times, we are going to be upping our production schedule to bring you more public policy content uh, related to and unrelated to the COVID-19 situation. So so any support uh, for that added capacity is greatly appreciated by us and a great way to deal with a pandemic that is up to no good and keep it from making trouble in your neighborhood. Actually, you know, it's not really going to do much for the pandemic, but it will help with some great pod content while you're stuck at home. All right, back to the pod. Welcome back to Ontario Loud. Uh, we are once again joined by my friend, Dr. Casey Park, uh, who was on a previous episode with us. You will go, we can go and listen to that. Uh, I'll post the link. Uh, but Casey is a critical care fellow and intensivist uh, in the University Hospital Network. And that basically means uh, he is directly responsible for administering some of the frontline care in this uh, crisis. So thanks again for joining us, man. Uh, oh. Super good to see you. Yep. Great to see you too, Chris. I can actually see you this time because we're recording on, on Zoom. No, uh, my privacy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, for the sake of, uh, we will not be releasing this in a video, but Casey and I can see each other. We are uh, dressed up for radio. Uh, our finest, our finest loungewear. Um, but yeah, how, how are you doing, man? How's work been this week? Um, I'm, I'm doing all right. I uh, finished up at Toronto General Hospital. I was actually supposed to be on a research uh, sabbatical for a month, um, where I was actually planning to do a little bit of the um, footwork in terms of the early uh, Toronto experience with critically ill people with COVID and um, coming up with a couple of manuscripts and uh, giving some uh, epidemiological support, but um, I've been redeployed to St. Mike's Hospital, uh, right downtown, um, right from straight from TGH, and basically just back at it. Uh, we're in um, preparatory mode still. However, we are seeing patients who are critically ill uh, with COVID uh, come through the doors, and uh, while we're not seeing the numbers that we're seeing in uh, Italy, New York, and other places around the world, um, we're preparing for peak at some point. Yeah. Yeah. So not exactly hitting over like their system being overrun 
levels right now, but mm-hmm. potentially potentially coming. What's that? What, what what's that? What's that been like? It's funny. Like I I I noticed that when we like talk about this in the media, mm-hmm. one of the things it just it's like fairly anodyne. Like here's the new cases, mm-hmm. here's the new deaths. Yeah. Um. Like, but I don't know. Like you shared some pretty like distressing <clears throat> stuff in like just like our group chat. Like, what does it actually like physically like? mean when like you're like looking at this even like at the preliminary stage what's distressing to many of us is that it's affecting uh young people without a market amount of comorbidities as equally as bad as individuals who are older so uh, we have people in their 30s and 40s on mechanical ventilation throughout our city's hospitals right now well we're also noticing um it does definitely play a role on the uh, collective psyche of the healthcare team because uh, many of um, our uh, colleagues who are a little bit older than us uh, not only are they in a higher risk group but also at the same time they've been through SARS and this is um, by orders of magnitude worse than that and so while it's good to have the um, collective experience and the uh, sage wisdom that they provide it's also at the same time, and I, I, I'm gonna just avoid using any war analogies because uh, I obviously have very strong feelings about um, kind of the militarization of our uh, healthcare, um, yeah. healthcare analogies. But uh, it, it is really like uh, just from a few of the few of our colleagues in uh, New York that have written things in the lay press. It, it is like feeling, it is like the feeling of standing on a beach right when a tsunami comes in where the water recedes and you're just literally waiting there. And uh, from what we've been seeing, people are sick with this, um, people are sick with this virus and the things that the virus, is, that the virus causes. And um, at least right now, it's, uh, it's, it's a waiting game and that, that definitely plays a toll on you because you're just walking into work kind of dreading exactly what's going to come in but then i guess yeah to be to be to be completely honest that's kind of like any day in the icu yeah no that's fair just like you know the i guess maybe it's just like that chance that it would be knowing that a bunch of shit's coming as opposed to just the randomness of the of the of the world last week ontario public health released some new triage guidelines and uh you said them to me and I, i i must admit i had a hard time getting through them um, a, because it was a technical document, not being a, a, a healthcare professional, um, but also B, just because it's like pretty hard to read. The triage guidelines are sort of describe three distinct phases where protocols change dependent on the volume, dependent on how well we, we bend that curve. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like based on my sort of lay read, it seemed really important that folks understand like what is going to be asked of our healthcare professionals to mm-hmm. do if uh, at various stages. So, what do you? Uh, I was wondering if you could just like tell us a little bit about the those guidelines that you got and um, what they could mean. Yeah. Um, so the guidelines essentially prepare um, this the critical care system in Ontario for the um, possibility that the amount of critically um, critically ill individuals will exceed the amount of life support machinery and uh, staff support that we have specifically. Um, I think the most important in this case is mechanical ventilators, uh, notwithstanding many other things that are involved with taking care of a critically ill person. But mm. um, there's uh, three distinct uh, stages that the uh, triage document do outline, stage one, two, and three. And uh, we're, as of April 10th on the recording of this, we're not at a stage one um, as of yet. Uh, it'll take 
a decision both from the provincial level as well as the individual heads of critical care services in Ontario to decide um, based on uh, the numbers at a certain threshold when we're in a surge um, where the risk of our ventilators running out is a real distinct possibility. But um, essentially what the document at least outlines is uh, based on objective um, evidence from various different um, various different long-term uh, outcomes papers, as well as uh, from very much so clinical research that we found, there's certain uh, patient populations and certain individuals, individual uh, groups of um, whether individuals with comorbidities, individuals uh, with advanced age, uh, individuals um, who have certain characteristics that may not necessarily do so well on mechanical ventilation. And these are large scale research papers that uh, at least we can glean a little bit off of. Um, and it would come down to a point where um, based on these set clinical criteria, um, a group of at least uh, three individuals um, would decide on who to apply these triage um, guidelines towards. So for example, in the emergency department, if there's uh, three individuals who need a ventilator uh, and we're in a level one, two, or three surge, these triage guidelines would be applied uh, clinically to these individuals and individuals who do not meet the threshold uh, for receiving um, a mechanical ventilator or critical care services at the time, they wouldn't necessarily be automatically shipped to palliative care and focused on end of life care per se, but they wouldn't necessarily come into an ICU um, and would receive uh, care uh, on a medical floor uh, in the hospital instead of being in the ICU. The, it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's the shit that keeps you up at night because you really hope that you, you don't have to apply these. However, from what we've yeah. been seeing around the world, um, it's a possible distinct possibility. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think that like when people talk about, we'll, we'll get into this in a second, like I, there's this sort of like, you know, keep the strain off the healthcare system. I think strain is a word that covers a lot of like really like strain is not just like, you know, you get strain after a run, you know, you can feel tired after like, but it's, it's the fact that it's like, if you are a comorbidity, which I'm assuming me is like, sort of like you're immunocompromised or something like that. But like, if you have sort of a set of conditions or you're a little older, that means like you are less likely to get life-saving care if there's less, if this exceeds the capacity. And that's, that's sort of like my take it, like it's to a point where like the systems and the procedures that would allow say like the elderly or the immunocompromised or even folks like who have, are sort of on the edges of those categories, like, you know, on the very worst case scenario, they would be deprioritized based on just like the probability of them living. Yeah, it's um, whenever you put somebody on a mechanical ventilator, the one of the first questions that you have to ask yourself is realistically, is this person going to come off of the mechanical ventilator with um, a quality of life that is appropriate and acceptable to them? And obviously, if I have to leave the uh, viewers and sorry, the listeners um, who listen to Ontario Loud with one message or at least a couple of messages, it's uh, number one. Uh, have those advanced care discussions with your family, especially if you're older or have comorbidities, um, specifically older living with uh, diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, um, immunocompromised. Have those discussions about exactly um, 
what you would find acceptable in the case where you do have to depend on a machine to essentially breathe for you. Yeah. But then on the other hand, um, I do think that um, there there is a significant amount of um, distress and fear, especially from the uh, disability advocacy advocacy community, specifically about the application of these um, uh, surge criteria. And um, I guess the case in point is that uh, some of these uh, criteria specifically focus on this idea of uh, clinical frailty. Frailty is frailty is um, being frail. There's a textbook that's definition, but at least medically. Uh, frailty is this um, syndrome or this collection of being um, of having a reduced physio physical, physiologic, and cognitive um, reserve. And I guess the concern is um, if we were to start applying these, the more support that you need, the more frail that you are. However, there are a significant amount of individuals who are disabled that that require the assistance of other people. However, are physiologically exactly the same as anyone walking on the street who are at least healthy on these uh, frailty scores. And so I guess if there's one criticism that I have to make of the guidelines is that there, there isn't caveats in place for individuals living with disabilities. On the other hand, I do hope that if we get into the shitty situation where we have to apply these criteria, I would feel that, um, you know, having at least three physicians who are experiencing critical care um, or the emergency provision of care as well as hopefully a bioethicist can, you know, discuss the nuances of each of these cases rather than kind of applying these, yeah, um, just kind of kind of rote and textbook. And so, yeah, it's uh, it's something that I really hope we don't have to apply, but or really don't have to start triaging. However, this is not the practice du jour as of today. This is literally yeah. for the worst case scenario. Yeah, and again, that important of bending that curve in a real in a real way uh actually it's funny uh, uh sarah texted me before the show with that uh, with a letter from the disability uh community so uh we'll uh also make sure we post that to twitter when this uh when this episode goes up mm -hmm. um, um and, and for the for the uh listeners sarah is my partner right? she's, <laughs> a, she's a sociocultural anthropologist at the university of Toronto, so she knows what she's talking about uh, yes, and a guest on the last podcast uh, doing uh, uh, there was a, 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 some, some some background sound, so I was making fun of her being like, "You were on the podcast too." Step back from the actual like maybe the issue in the moment and talk about some of that sociocultural stuff. I live in a building, and we're seeing like people like banging their pots uh, in the evening. You know, lots of like every politician saying our frontline healthcare worker heroes, um, uh, and. I don't know, just curious for your thoughts. Like, what does it feel like to be in this moment? Like, are you, where there's such like a public, like, is, is there stuff that you wish the public was focusing on that they're not? Um, is it, is it like, you know, just as a person who is the subject of this sort of like, I don't know, this very particular and I think focus we're putting on healthcare workers and their supports and, and needs, like, are, is, is the, is what we're doing actually matching up to the, the rhetoric? I, I, I do feel that um, if I do have a uh, concern about this um, kind of sudden hero worship, it's the idea that I do think the public has a preordained specific idea of exactly what a healthcare worker is. And I do think that that's a physician, nurse, respiratory therapist um, who are on the front lines, uh, you know, managing pumps, inserting devices, 
uh, into people and, you know, kind of uh, maintaining the machinations that keep people alive or supported throughout this. But um, I guess my one bone to pick is the entire idea that the, the people that keep us safe while working are the environmental workers and are the maintenance individuals that um, there's a lot of patient movement in the hospital now and it's supporters that move the patient safely. Uh, once that patient room is clear, uh, once a patient room doesn't have a patient in it anymore, we're probably going to have another patient in, in a very short amount of time. And it's the, the maintenance, it's, it's, it's the custodial staff that clean it very like clean it in a like literally hermetically clean it like so it's safe to bring another patient in like within within the last few weeks where the conversation has been on this idea of a healthcare hero it's been focused on the idea of like who I talked about but it it, it, it kind of sucks that it took the death of a environmental services worker at uh, Brampton Civic uh, of COVID to bring these other people into light um, yeah and yeah, I, I, otherwise, if, if people want to bang their pots and bands because they feel that, you know, they're at home and they want to show their support, yeah, great. I'm not, I, I, I'm not really hearing it from my neighborhood just because I live a little <laughs> bit north of downtown, uh, away from uh, Condo Central, but... Residents of North Toronto, get the <laughs> fuck on that. <laughs> no, I, 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 the bottom line is that I feel that there's, um, there's individuals that may not meet the textbook definition of a frontline hero or a healthcare worker or a healthcare um, hero, but uh, at least um, we're starting to bring those people into the conversation. Uh, you were talking sort of about like the militarization of of this conversation. One of the things that struck me is that it's like in a crisis like this, where the front line is disease, like we make sense that we would sort of think of, you know, healthcare workers in sort of the same way that we sort of lionize the military um, mm-hmm. in this in the same way. But in that picture of what a healthcare worker is, like, yeah, leaving out the people that like risk their lives cleaning rooms is mm-hmm. uh, not good. And I would put also if you own N95 masks in your house and you're out banging your pots, like, also maybe not doing your fucking job. But, um, it, it, uh, but, um, but I digress. That's I think uh, all we have for today. I want to make sure you, you know, we're not spending your whole uh, day off talking about this. But appreciate you checking with us again and. Thanks for all uh, you're doing and thanks for coming back on Ontario Lab. And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. I want to thank Casey Park for coming back on Ontario Loud. Uh, we will be back later this week with an interview with Donald Savoy. He's a professor at the University of Ottawa who writes a lot about uh, institutions and federalism in Canada and particularly how uh, our institutions are imperiled uh, in this time. He had a book last year um, called Democracy in Canada, The Disintegration of Our Institutions. Alexi interviews him. Really looking forward to that. It'll be the first in a series that we're calling Ontario Loud Book Club. It's really, really uh, stretch. It was a real difficult brainstorming session we had for that title. But uh, yeah, we're going to be reading some books and bringing you our impressions of them. Uh, as this uh, rolls on and we all have a little bit more time on our hands to do some reading. Anyway, want to thank uh, Sam, Alexi, Alvin, Grima. We are the co-hosts of Ontario Loud. Uh, Harmon Mundy and Aisha Anwar are our volunteers. We will see you next week.